Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the, wording, hear the reading of the Lord's word from the book of Numbers, chapter 14, starting at verse 17. Moses is speaking. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land which I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Yephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithful faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's that? Good morning. Can you hear me? <clears throat> My name is Doug Hill. I am an elder here at Grace uh, Presbyterian Church, if you don't know me. And I am going to preach on Psalm 90 this morning. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because Ryan had a good idea uh, to do that. Uh, he, for the last several months, he has preached on the life of Moses, and then he had ten sermons on the Ten Commandments, and the last couple of weeks, he's preached on God's presence in the tabernacle. And so, uh, as an introductory to the Psalms for the summer, we, Ryan said, how about I do Psalm 90, which is the, the song of Moses? So we thought, great idea, all right? So I like it when my text is chosen for me. So if you have uh, a Bible or a device to look at Psalm 90, go ahead and do that now. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. Uh, thank you, Thomas, for that long uh, reading, so I'm not going to read all of Psalm 90, but you can follow along as I talk about the verses individually. Um, the first thing you notice about Psalm 90, again, we're not going to read it, but if you do read it, it feels old. 
right? It has an ancient feel to it. And in fact, being uh, actually a prayer of Moses, not a song, it uh, is probably 500 years older than any other psalm in the Bible. And when you read it, it has this feeling of ancientness to it. So the doctrines he talks about feel primitive, like basic, old. It reminds me of this. Maybe it, this wouldn't hit you, but it hits me. I have, a, I have a library, and the oldest book I have in my library is from 1754. By the way, it's not worth much money. But it's a folio edition of the works of John Flavel, right? It's about that thick. Folio is, you know, a printer, they take one piece of paper and go like that, and that's it. So when you open it, it's like big, all right? And it's double column, it's about that thick. And John Flavel's works are about like this in six volumes in normal books, but this is like one big folio. And so I was sitting there a few weeks ago reading this book, you know, and it, leaning back like this, and I have this book out, and it just feels old. I mean, the paper, like on a new book, you feel the paper, and it's really smooth, and all the letters are clear. This book, it's like woven cotton, and it feels soft. You, know, you turn the pages, it just feels soft. And there's foxing in it. There's these brown age marks, you know, which you might find gross, but I find really quaint or something. Yeah, and even the, even the typeset, you know, from the 18th century, I don't know if it's because maybe, the, I mean, they use metal type, but maybe it's because a, a person did this instead of a machine doing this. But all the letters of, don't, sometimes there's a difference in, in uh, space between the letters. And so each word has its own character. And the, the S's are in the shapes of F's. And anyway, it's just old. It just feels old when you're reading it. I was reading it, and my wife came by and said, you look like a monk you know, <laughs> sitting there. So anyway, that's what I feel like when I read this psalm, Psalm 90. It's old. Uh, notice the inscription, the introduction to Moses' uh, prayer. It's called a prayer of Moses, the man of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And the obvious easy lesson there is that real men and real women pray. Okay, Real men, Moses was a man of God. He is a dependent creature. He is not self-reliant. He is not autonomous. Real men and women are beggars at the throne of grace. So let's do that. Let's pray before we start. Okay. <clears throat> Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Father, we thank you, first of all, for Jesus, the eternal word, your perfect expression. Thank you for sending him to earth and showing us what you are like. Uh, we thank you for your eternal word. Father, we thank you for the way you uphold all things by the word of your power. Lord, if you weren't speaking, if Jesus wasn't speaking, we would disintegrate. And so we thank you that in you we live and move and even have our being. Father, we thank you for this written word, Psalm 90, that we're going to read now. We thank you that it is settled in heaven, that it's a sure word, that it's true. Uh, we pray that you would give us faith to believe it and to act on it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a summary of the psalm, of Psalm 90. Let me just tell you what it all says, and then we'll go back and look at it, uh, most of the verses, uh, verse by verse. So it's, the first section is a meditation. Moses is sitting there, and he thinks about God and Israel. And then the last section is a prayer. All right, and the first section, he says first, God, you are our home. 
which is a strange thing to say about a person or a being. You are our home. Then he says, God, you are eternal, and in comparison, our life lasts a second. That's his second meditation. His third is, your wrath burns against sin. And then he prays. In his prayer, he says, Lord, give us the desire to be wise. And verse 12, I think it's verse 12, that's really the linchpin of the whole sermon. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. How would we say that? We would say, um, Lord, give us a heart and a mind that wants wisdom so that we will um, have an eternal perspective about our daily lives. Maybe it's something like that. And then the last um, prayer he has is, make us and our children truly happy and bless the work of our hands. Okay, look at verse 1. This is the first piece of wisdom that Moses gives. And it's, God, you are our home. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Think about that. A dwell God is a dwelling place. Lord, you have been our habitation. You have been our house. You have been our home. Like the hymn says that we just sang, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Now I want to spend a little time with this idea, this idea that God is our home, because I have to say some dreadful things later. So let's uh, enjoy this first. Um, the first thing, God being our home, is that God is our shelter. He's our protection. He's our safety. Uh, he keeps us from the elements, right? So the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Yeah, thank you. You're our home in that way. But I want to take it a little deeper. If you are connected to the eternal God through faith in Jesus Christ, you share in his eternity right now. We are living a blessed eternal life right now. Do you walk around feeling that way? Because that's wisdom. I mean, it's one thing to know that in your head, but to walk around living that way, that's wisdom. All right, that's some, that's some old wisdom from Moses. First <clears throat> uh, John, it says, He that keeps God's commandments dwells in God, and God dwells in him. Jesus talked to some people who were thinking about following him, and he told them this strange thing. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That's strange. Paul says it this way. You, Christian, are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Strange. Uh, it was a big deal in the ancient world to be a Roman citizen. Paul says, actually, our citizenship, where we really live right now, is in heaven. And from there, we look for the Savior. But it was nice to be a Roman citizen, but that was, really wasn't where he counted his citizenship. I pledge my allegiance to, I don't know, heaven, I suppose. <laughs> that's, that's where he lives. <clears throat> so we are, we are living an eternal, blessed life. Right now, we should, we should feel that way. But for me, the idea of home is really a place of comfort. I don't know how you feel about your house, your physical house. But for me, it's a, a place of comfort. When we lived in western New York, we lived in western New York for 15 years, and we had a big brick, two-story house. And it was, it was big, it was nice. We moved here to Stillwater in 2006, 
And we bought this, I call, I tell Sylvia, it's our stupid little home, or our stupid little house. It's just a stupid little house. You know, it's, it's nothing. It's just there. You know, but when you walk in, oh, it just, it feels right, you know? It, it smells right. It's, uh, you know, it's got the things on the wall. It's got all kinds of experiences and love have happened in that home. And it just feels home. It's like that dumb old song. What is it? Uh, mid, mid pleasures and palaces. I don't know, remember how it goes. But there's no place like home. Remember that? Yeah, it's home. That's how we should feel about God. We should feel like, ah, finally, where I belong, I am home. Now, I can imagine, as Moses is writing this down, uh, Lord, in all generations you have been our dwelling place. I can imagine some Jewish cynic scribe looking over at Moses. Moses sitting there with a long beard, like wizened face, you know, the light of God shining out from his eyes. And he's writing this down. And I can see this cynic saying, you have been our dwelling place in all generations? What are you talking about, Moses? In all generations? Let me, let me remind you of our generations. First of all, Abraham. He had a nice place in the Ur of the Chaldees, and you brought him out, and he wandered. He had no home. He wandered in the land of Canaan his whole life. His, his sons, Isaac, Jacob, they all wandered. Then we ended up in Egypt. Oh, great home God provided there. We were slaves for 400 years, but it gets better. Then we move into the promise. promise. Oh, yeah, promise. Sure. Uh, so we, we wander for 40 years, and God would pick up the tent. We had to pick up the tent pegs sometimes every day. Great home, God. Why do you write that stupid verse, Moses? <laughs> and, of course, Moses would probably look up and say, you are a fool. <laughs> and then, of course, the obvious answer that any child could see is, is that God is a spiritual, eternal home, all right? Even Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He's not talking about that, although God is good in that way too, but God is our eternal home. All right, the second piece of wisdom from Psalm 90. <clears throat> and this is about having an eternal perspective. God, you are eternal, and in comparison, our life lasts a second. Now, if I ask you as a Christian, do you think God is eternal? You'd say, yeah, what do you take me for? And is our life last, does our life last a short time? You'd say, yeah, well, it's 70, 80 years, but yeah, I guess the Bible says that. You would, you would give the right answer. But wisdom is getting it down into the way you live and think every day, not just some kind of you know, theoretical piece of knowledge. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 3, you return man to dust, and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night, three hours. A thousand years is like three hours to God. Um, a watch in the night, or, uh, I'm sorry, um, yesterday when it is past. Okay, today, think about today. We're living in time, right? God doesn't live in time. He's not bound by time, but we live in time. Today, we go to church. That took a while. This sermon's taking a while. Uh, we got lunch, we got dinner, we got, you know, it's a full day. How about yesterday? 
when I was in it, it seemed like a long time, but now I, I can't even hardly remember what I did yesterday. It's like gone. That's yesterday when it is past. That's what a thousand years is like to God. It's just, just like that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, how do we describe God's eternity? A being who exists in the infinite past all the way to the infinite future. Uh, I heard an illustration recently of time. Picture time as a timeline on a poster board. Poster board's a pretty big piece of paper or, you know, cardboard, right? So it's this big, all of time, 10,000 years, 10 billion years. I don't know how long the Earth, I don't know how long time's going to last. Who knows? Let's say 10 billion years. It's all on a timeline right there. There's time. There it is, all of time. To think about God, though, this isn't even close, but God exists in this room outside of time. And actually, you need to take that wall and go an infinite distance that way and an infinite distance that way. And that is how God exists. Mind-blowing. I don't know what to do with it. <clears throat> then he talks about the shortness of our lives. And I'm just going to paraphrase uh, the illustrations in verses 5 through 10. He says, our lives in comparison, of course, God is eternal, but our lives are like Someone traveling in a canoe, now the word canoe is not in your translation, I promise you, but it's like someone in a canoe on a swiftly floating river. That's our whole life. You know, it's like, and somebody goes, hey, where are you going? Uh, that, that's my life. Yeah. That's gone. Our whole life is like a dream that we try to remember. We wake up, what just happened? What was that? That's our life. Um, our life is like the grass in the Middle East. It's rained on in the morning, it grows up, the sun scorches it, and then it withers. That's our life. Well, this is depressing. <laughs> but from an internal perspective, that is true. All right? It's like a mournful sigh, Moses said. Ah, that's our life. Okay? As Basil Fawlty put it, any Fawlty Towers people in here? No? Okay. Uh, Basil says, zoom. What was that? That was your life, mate. That was quick. Do I get another? Sorry, mate. That's your lot. Or um, I was going to give you uh, Shakespeare, The Seven Ages of Man, but I thought, no, how about Billy Crystal in City Slickers? All right? You guys know what I'm going to say right now? You don't know what I'm going to say. Okay. If maybe two people. How many people have seen City Slickers? I need to see this. All right. How many people have not seen Sli City Slickers? Okay, so this is for you. Um, Bill, uh, Billy Crystal, he plays this father, and he's depressed about his job. And his son asks him to come to career day and tell him about your job, so he does. So this is his speech at career day uh, for his son, uh, you know, junior high or whatever. He says, value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices, and it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin, the music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. Your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music is still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, 
you and your wife are tired of Fort Lauderdale, you start eating dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch around 10, breakfast the night before, and you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate and soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? By the 80s, you've had a major stroke, and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? Wow. But, you know, that is wisdom, to think that my life is short, all right? It is short. I need to do what is important now, because it's, go it, it's going by like that. So what do you do with that, with that wisdom, if you have it? Again, you value eternal things now. So I just, I picked literally the first things that came into my head. Money, from an eternal perspective. Okay, money is useful, right? It's very useful, but it has wings. It flies away, but you can use that for good. Okay, how about affliction, trouble? Oh, yeah, very useful. Put that down as very useful from an eternal perspective. Uh, how about education? Literally, these were the first things I thought of, education. Hmm. That's useful. The first thing, it can help me understand God better, the Bible better. So, yeah, education, check. Um, reproof. Oh, yeah, very useful for eternity. Reprove me, please. Bring it on. Vacations. Hmm, it could be valuable. Rest, fellowship. Yeah, okay, maybe. Watching TV, sports, movies. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, you, so you just start evaluating your life that way. And you, you put things in proper perspective. All right, verse 7. We're going down. Down, 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 down. All right, verse 7. <clears throat> For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed or terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now this is sobering. Israel was crushed by God's anger in the wilderness. It's estimated that 15,000 Israelites died every year in the wilderness because not one of them except Joshua and Caleb made it to the promised land as Thomas read. So the third piece of wisdom here I think Moses gives, does your idea of the character of God include wrath? It's not a popular idea today, but that's wisdom, okay? God is a perfectly pure being. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James says that when someone's tempted to sin, don't think God had anything to do with that. That's your own lust uh, taking you away. God loves right. He hates wickedness. Hatred is love in the opposite direction. It was said about Jesus, you loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and God made you happier than any other person. Right? So we have to do both. We have to love righteousness but hate wickedness. God can't look on sin without being repulsed by it. It's like Jesus told the church in Laodicea in um, Revelation 3. Because you're, you're lukewarm, you're a hypocrite, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. 
right? Um, it, it's, it's opposite to his character. And I think we know that uh, deep down. We don't like to talk about it, but I think we know it. But what's hard for us is keeping these two ideas together in, in God's relationship with us. Does God love us? Yes. He's our home. He loves us like a tender father. Yes, he does. Does God hate our sins? Yes, of course. He loves the Christian and hates their sins. But I can't hold those two in my mind. Well, we have to work on it. Uh, the Westminster Confession in chapter 2 says that God is a pure spirit who hates all sin. In chapter 15, and the Westminster Confession are our standards for the Presbyterian Church in America, talking about repentance, he said, he talk, they, talk, they, they talk about the filthiest, filthiness and odiousness of sin as contrary to the holy nature of God. I read uh, John Calvin on Psalm 90, and often Calvin's not the best on a psalm, but he was really good on this part. He said that um, it's only the believer, actually, that understands and feels God's wrath. Here's a quote from Calvin. It is a holy awe of God, and that alone which makes us truly and deeply feel his anger. The reprobate, the unbeliever, chafes, kicks, and becomes exasperated or is stupefied or hardened when God shows his wrath against them. The minds of the godly alone are wounded with the wrath of God. Nor do they wait for his thunderbolts, but they tremble the very moment when God moves only his little finger. Again, he says, the psalmist, Moses, is treating of a doctrine which belongs to true believers. He affirms that they have a strongly sensitive feeling of the wrath of God, which makes them quietly submit themselves to his authority. And the last thing he says, in short, the faithful alone are sensible of God's wrath, and being subdued by it, they acknowledge that they are nothing and with true humility devote themselves wholly to him. This is wisdom to which the reprobate cannot attain because they can't lay aside the pride with which they are inflated. Okay, so much for the wrath of God. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I have to say something about the character of God. You don't just want to say, God is wrathful. Okay, that gives the wrong idea. Definitely the wrong impression. In the prophets, it says that judgment Showing wrath for sin is God's strange work. It's a strange thing for him. He, in the prophets, it also says he delights in mercy. That's where, if I could say it this way, mercy and love is where God's groove is. You know what I mean? That's what he, he loves to love. Even in verse 16 of Psalm 90, it's called his proper work. Let me uh, finish it, uh, this section with an illustration and pardon this illustration, it's been done to death, I'm sure. But, it, you know, God is easy to please. I don't know if you believe that or not, but the character of God, he is easy to please. It's like a, it's like a family, and there's a, let's say it's a four-year-old girl, and her name's Clarissa, all right? And Clarissa tells mom that day, I want to draw a picture of the family. Okay, Clarissa, go for it. So she sits at the kitchen table, has her crayons out, and there she goes. She spends a few hours, and there's a picture of the family. Now imagine, what happens when the father comes home and looks at the picture? What does he do? Well, what he does is he says, hey, Daddy, I drew a picture, and there's, there's you, and there's Mom, and there's, uh, there's Jeff, and, and there's me, and there's the dog. What, is it, what do you do? You put it on the refrigerator, right, with the thingy. And, uh, and somebody comes over, and you praise this thing. That's, that's what you do as a good, tender father. That's the way God accepts our 
sincere efforts or whatever. He's very, very easy to please. God is not like this. The father comes home and says, Daddy, I drew a picture for you. Oh, really? Let me see it, Clarissa. What were you thinking about when you thought about the composition of this, of this picture? You call that perspective? That doesn't look like your mother at all. What? No, that's terrible. God's not like that. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Uh, just to say it in one, in, you know, the, the people in the wilderness who felt God's wrath, uh, I forget what the word they used in Numbers 14, but it was uh, high-handed. You know, uh, he dis- they despised the Lord, it said. It's like they stuck their middle finger out at God. Yeah. But God's wrath shows itself to Christians by disciplining them, not punishing them. And even in his discipline, I don't know about you, but it seems like God is reluctant, very lenient even to discipline. All right, done with that. The last piece of wisdom, and I'm going to skip the fifth one, but the fourth piece of, w- of wisdom is this. The source of power for the Christian is the daily experiencing of the love of God. That's where you get your power from, the love of God. And I think if you, tell, if you told an unbeliever this for too long, I think they would say something like, oh, you Christians, you're always talking about the love of God for you. And it just sounds selfish and self-absorbed. And I would respond, yeah, right. You try to live the Christian life in your own strength. It doesn't work. Yeah, so uh, Paul told Timothy, Timothy, first, take heed to yourself. Okay, so there's a good Christian selfishness. All right, you've got to be filled up with the love of God to give to other people. We don't have anything. So never feel ashamed for filling up yourself with the love. You have to. It's your only source of strength for anyone else or help for anyone else. So, uh, verse 14. Moses says it this way. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Lord, make me a happy Christian is a good prayer. It's like God has put in all people a desire for happiness. Now, it goes awry, obviously, but that desire for happiness is a good desire. Lord, make me... I mean, a Christian that's a sourpuss is not a good testimony, all right? So we want to be happy Christians, blessed Christians. And let me give you, just to end on this, let me give you one secret to Christian happiness. I hate secrets, by the way, in the Christian life. Sorry about that. But uh, if I had to say one, one secret to Christian happiness, it would be this. And let me address, are there any uh, teenagers here? Hardly. Sorry. Okay, I'm not addressing this to teenagers because we have like four, so I don't want to point you out or anything. But I think young people need to hear this message. All right? Here's the, me- here's the secret to Christ, or one secret to Christian happiness. The, the, the message is you have to learn to die. Now, I don't mean take a razor and slash your wrist or something, but you, you have to learn to die. All right? Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. You've got to count the cost. You've got to pick up the cross. It's heavy. 
It has splinters in it, and you're going to be you're going to die on that thing. And you have to be willing to do that daily. Whoa. Jesus said, the one who loses his life is the one who will find it. Jesus said, it's like a grain of wheat. If you just throw it on the ground, what does it do? Nothing. But if it goes into the ground and dies, then it bears forth much fruit. All right? Jesus described himself as a rock. He said, on some people he falls and they're broken. On others, he falls and he crushes them to powder. All right, we want to be the one that he breaks, all right? So, die. Is dying hard? That's a real question. In one sense, no. Just give up, right? Just die. <laughs> Just die already. No, it's, it's not hard if you give up. Now, if you're going to struggle, it's going to be painful. And there's going to be screaming, and there's going to be some broken bones probably if you struggle, but dying can be easy. Just give up. Is dying hard? Yes. For some people, it's the hardest thing they'll ever do. It's like um, Beauty and the Beast. It's like kissing Beast. Do you want to kiss the Beast? No, he's ugly. What happens, though, when you kiss the Beast? He turns into the, into the, <laughs> into the, the handsome young man, right? That's, where, is that, that's the joy, but you've you got to kiss the beast. Yeah. <clears throat> now, you tell young people this, you have to die to be a Christian. You have to die, forget that part, we won't even talk about that, but you have to die to experience the joy of the Christian life. You just do. Um, and immediately I think they think, okay, there goes all my fun. Um, I feel condemned already. I guess I'll have to be a missionary in Africa someday, which I don't. And no. No, for young people, no. You, you probably wouldn't be a good missionary in Africa anyway. I wouldn't, certainly. So, uh, so no, uh, don't, don't worry about it. Actually, as young people, you actually have one command until you go out of your parents' uh, house, and you know what it is. It's the fifth commandment. Obey your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Obey your parents with a decent attitude. That's your only command until you go out of your parents' home. So what would dying look like for a teenager? It would be, uh, mom says, I need you to clean your room. Okay, mom, that's dying. Maybe you didn't want to clean your room at that time. All right, maybe you had something else you wanted to do. But you think, okay, I, I, I'm dead. I'm a, I'm a servant of God. I'm a slave. I'll do what, not your will, but my, not my will, but yours be done, God. Clean your room. Okay, mom. Inside, you're, you're fighting it, but you say, okay, Mom. Okay, Dad, sure. And if you, and if you give them lip, then you, you have to go back and you have to apologize, all right? But that is real dying on a daily basis for young people, okay? For adults, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, what does dying look like? I heard it said this way, whatever is your Isaac, you know, Abraham had a beloved son named Isaac, Whatever is your Isaac, the thing you love the most, it could be a person, it could be your family, it could be an activity, it could be a sin. Whatever is your Isaac, you have to lay it up on the altar. You just do. And God will he'll give you Isaac back. He'll give you lots of other things back. But you'll have it with a different attitude. 
right. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we pray that you would make your word effective in our hearts. Uh, give us the desire to meditate about these things. Uh, fill us with your gladness uh, because we can't do it. Lord, who else do we go to? You have the words of eternal life. Father, we thank you for this time. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.